welcome to the ALN podcast series. If you like what you're hearing, you can find this and other podcasts, videos, papers, and more at assetleadership.net. Today's episode is brought to you by the Andrew James Advisory Group. AJAG provides training in the ISO 55000 standard, and our world-class training qualifies students to take the ALN A55K certification exam, an industry recognition of an individual's knowledge of the standard. Certified individuals add value to any organization's asset management initiatives. Realizing your ISO 55000 vision need not be painful. Visit us at www.andrewjamesadvisory.com to see how we can help. Now, enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Tim. It's good to have you on today. Hello, Jim. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, where are you calling from today? So Warrington, um, it's in northern part of the UK, just right in between Liverpool and Manchester. Bit of a grim day today, but it's it's a nice part of the world normally. How about we yourself, Jim? Where are you? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, whereabouts are you at the moment, Jim? Uh, well, I'm in my home office in uh, Vienna, Virginia, just near Tyson's Corner, and, uh, you know, 20 minutes from D.C. Uh, so uh, a good place to be. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a sunny, beautiful day here. We've had uh, some days uh, uh, in the uh, 70s, uh, Fahrenheit. So, you know, and, and maybe even down to 20 or so uh, Celsius. So nice. Uh, so, Tim, we usually start off with an origin story. You know, how you know, how'd you get into asset management or, you know, how'd you get here today? And, you know. Okay. How did it happen? Yeah. Uh, so I, um, I've been quite lucky. I've had quite a varied background across a, a lot of different sectors from oil and gas to, to research. Like um, I was lucky enough to work on Square Kilometre Array, which is world's largest radio telescope, which is being built at the moment, um, to various nuclear um, applications, normal production, lots of defence, just basically anything that's high risk set that I've been lucky enough to get involved with. Um, I seem to always go back to uh, one pivotal point in my career when I I think about sort of an origin story or or something like that. And it was uh, in my first proper job. uh, I used to work up at Sellafield, which up in the north of England, it's a nuclear facility, quite a big one, especially by UK standards. About 10,000 people sort of work there at any one time. Um, It's, yeah, it's it's a big, big place. And there's, um, it was the world's first ever um, production nuclear power plant. It was remnants of the Cold War. It had nuclear processing facilities in terms of reprocessing fuel. We also used to make um, new nuclear fuel, um, sort of quite fast burning, so a, a combination of uranium and plutonium and mixed oxide <laughs> fuel. And part of my career was spent on um, part of the production lines. And uh, I, I got quite a bit of responsibility quite early on in my career. And... I was a what was called a system engineer at the time, and it was here are a series of systems, they're yours, um, and you manage them. You're, you're looking sort of five, 10, 25 years ahead. It's something you'd probably nowadays call an asset manager in a lot of terms. Um, we were looking at the time at implementing things like PAS 55. It was it was one of those sort of transitional points. And we, we had a piece of equipment that for for a few different reasons was under quite a bit of scrutiny from the UK regulator, the Japanese regulator, Japanese customers, uh, the, the UK government. Um, 
And we decided to replace it because the maintenance times on it were quite poor. This say replacing a symbol belt would take two weeks um and we had aspirations that we get it down to about five minutes something like that and we, we succeeded in the end um the the short version of the story is i managed to shut the plant down for three months in doing so rather than the two-week planned production time that it took uh, there is plan to take and what happened was that we we had all the drawings, we had all the hardware. I'd been lucky enough to take it through sort of a graduate program and seen it through the design processes. It was a good piece of kit. Um, and we came to install. We'd trained in inverted commas the, the operators and the maintainers. We, we'd upskilled everyone. We'd explained what was going on. But all there was was hardware, a work pack with all the risk assessments and a set of drawings in, in real terms. And when it came to the installation... We'd ripped out all the old kit, just about put the new kit in, and this is in glove boxes. It's you're wearing respirators, you're wearing three pairs of gloves. It's it's really hard to operate, and you're trying to manufacture down to like uh, plus or minus ten micron tolerances. And I got the flu <laughs> first day. We were just about to put the first piece of kit in, had my respirator on, and my boss looked at me and just said, "Get out! <laughs> you look like you're about to pass out." I came back two weeks later, and there was a, a cascade of events that had started with the equipment being put in, something being the wrong size, someone then taking a piece out and machining it a little bit. Then um, one of the pieces of product came in, in contact with the material. It just didn't, didn't, didn't really react in the way we ever expected. And then people tried to adjust it the way you used to adjust the old machine. And then people tried to do something else and it went on to a five shift cycle. So it was just Chinese whispers from shift to shift to shift. And the reason I go back to that is I didn't realize at the time, but that was the moment that taught me that in order to operate, in order to maintain, in order to deliver an organization at any given point, it's so much more about all the things that are around the equipment in some cases than the actual equipment yeah. itself. Yeah. And I was lucky enough then to, to move on to more defense orientated work, which was then undertaking things like systems engineering requirements, management, integrated logistics support, logistics support analysis, uh, ARM, RAM, which to me is all design side asset management. And if you get that right, you can hit the ground running with a, a, a set of information, a set of decisions, a set of logic that can really help you operate um, in an asset management way of thinking. Um, so yeah, that, that, that probably is the bulk of my origin. And in terms of where we are with asset management now, that led me to a position where I was um, advising the UK nuclear regulator on what good looks like across UK nuclear fleets, at least. And then I've started supporting the likes of the International Atomic Energy Agency and developing some guidance with a, a group of eight other people from around the world, which is really interesting, um, as well as supporting lots of other sectors around the world. But I think the nuclear stuff is probably been my, um, my biggest crown to date, I think. So I don't know if that helps you a little bit. Ah, no, that's that's a different story than we've heard from anybody before. That's uh, um, that's a great story. Sometime we're going to put together a whole, like an hour video of just people's origin stories. I think would be interesting. But uh, so I think I saw that report, you know, from the and let me get the acronym right. It's the IAEA, right? International Atomic yeah. Energy Agency. I thought you were. I thought you were talking about when I broke the plant. <laughs> There was a couple of those reports that came out, but, um, <laughs> but oh, <no. laughs> 
Um, but no, yeah. So the, the yeah the one with the International International Atomic Energy Agency. So that's um, for reference. That's effectively the nuclear arm of the UN. So it reports into the UN Security Council. So it's the you know you see people going in to do audits of, of various nuclear facilities around the world to check that nothing's gone missing. It, it's part of that organisation. So it's it, it's quite well placed and quite interlinked with the likes of the UN. And um, I must admit, the first time I arrived, I, I hadn't put two and two together. And I, I came to Vienna and we had um, arrived at uh, the, the convention centre and just looked around. I thought something's a bit odd here. All the flags from all the way around the world in front of a big fountain. And you know, something's not quite right. Walked into the canteen and just see the UN sustainable development goals all over the wall. And then all of a sudden the penny drops where we were and it's, yeah, so it's the UN headquarters um, in Vienna and it's, yeah, it, very interesting experience. Wow. Yeah, nice. So uh, how did you get involved in the uh, in the UK Mirror Group and, and that you're now the head up, right? Yeah, so I chair it. Um, took over from David McEwen, uh, who some people may know from the Institute of Asset Management. Um, it was... One of those, I think, fortuitous events from my point of view. Um, I was talking with Reese Davies, who's the um, the international chair, and we were talking about how to try and get involved. And just so happened there wasn't much nuclear representation on the UK committee at the time, so I reached out and uh, tried to help. And just as I joined the committee, David was stepping down, so I thought, well, why not? <laughs> and it's been a really, really interesting uh, couple of years trying to just see how how this discipline has evolved and I think it's a really pivotal time because we're all the, the great groundwork that like yourselves being part of in, in getting the standards where it is and now that we're we're looking at it again it's I think there's a, a real good chance to to evolve and, and and bring on the last decades of learning. Yeah I'd have to say you know my opportunity to head the U.S. delegation for the you know the development part was uh it wasn't just a project I was involved in, it was a life experience really that you know, changed my understanding, outlook, and uh, you know, professionally and just uh, you know, the, uh, as you alluded to, the international aspect of it, of you know, the reality of dealing with people from all over the world, uh, people speaking in different languages and trying to communicate. Uh, when I can barely get out a few words of German and a few words of Spanish and that, uh, you know, we got people speaking in their third language and talking technical. It's, you know, and then there's understanding the Brits, you know, and that's like, that's, you know, that's really hard. <laughs> Good bit of sarcasm here and there, and we'll, we'll keep it going. Uh, but yeah, especially with the, the IEA work, we, uh, that was my first proper experience in that that environment and it was it was really interesting to see because we were focused on a, a, a sector when you just look at the, the the makeup of say nuclear power yeah. the different dynamic as you move around the world and the different drivers um, especially at the time when we were doing it you've got germany had just shut down its reactors for political reasons you've got um say finland uh sorry sweden who were a very critical point where effectively they had a strike price for the um, electricity. And if their cost of generation went below that, that's it, they shut down the reactor. Oh, sorry, it went above it. Um, and then you've got the likes of Russia where it was completely different. If they wanted to build one, they just built one. Um, and China's in a, a big growth spurt at the moment. And you've got, say, the UK where you're in this position where it's, it's half regulated in terms of the power generation. It's half for the greater good that we know that we need that base load of power in the UK that, that, 
that nuclear's providing at the time. So it's just really interesting just looking at that one sector and the drivers that sat behind it and then trying to see how that was impacted by things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals and and how the the concept of nuclear operations could provide low carbon and how it can connect and deliver some of those really big societal um, opportunities and how asset management can help drive that really. Yeah. Are, are you seeing, uh, are experiencing, you know, the senior level decision maker, policy maker buy-in into asset management approaches? Yeah, so it's, it's, um, it's quite interesting. I think COVID's probably been quite a, an odd positive from an asset management sense. Um, I think those facilities that have had asset management in place prior to um, sort of big black swan events like either Fukushima or COVID, they've recognised that that change in, in stimulus in terms of the constraints of the ability to get people on site, it's actually enabled them to look across their asset base and say, hang on, what can we do? How do we leverage this? Well, we've got these huge assets of people, right? We need to we need to understand how to support them correctly. But then when it comes down to the physical assets, which ones can we push the maintenance out a bit from what we'd like to do? Which ones can we not let slip? How do we, what extra performance can we bring out? Because potentially they're in a position where they need to create more power because of the plants are, are now in a different position. So those, those facilities that have actually managed to harness the power of asset management, and I'd say the best in class are the ones who can then say, yes, we've made these short-term decisions, but the, the long-term impact is X and, and they understand the risk profile that they've now taken on. And I think it, it's a, it's something that by the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency taking on board, if they're talking about asset management, then the local regulators take it on board. They then talk about asset management. And I mean, there's um, technical assessment guides in the UK, which extol what the what good asset management looks like and that the UK, they don't necessarily regulate against, but they're key principles that if... Uh, they go to a site, they are looking for like proportionate effort across the life cycle. They're looking for risk-based practices. They're looking for auditability. They're looking for all the core things that are asset management. And if someone isn't compliant, they can then um, connect that to a, a license condition to, to kind of drive forward. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, we've been, uh, Tim and I have both been on the uh, ISO uh, work group. Uh, TC251 group work group four calls, which are, you know, a nice afternoon time in the UK or at 7 a.m. in the US East Coast. And I'm like, I don't get up at 6 a.m. Yeah, I did that for many years. <laughs> so that's a, a real challenge for me. Uh, but, and I've been in leading an effort of the group or facilitating, I guess is a better word, uh, around the principles. And uh, there was a, a, a one of the the example you gave it in your origin story about the part and then the implications that it had. Uh, somebody made a comment uh, and I, about criticality, and well, I know about criticality to some degree. I'm not a you know maintenance and reliability expert by any stretch, uh, but Jenny and Tacoma Zach and Uberlytics, you know, it's you know they built a whole you know business you know around that. That's very successful. But I never really got the connection of critical until this conversation. I never got the connection. It you know, just didn't click in my head. The, the connection between criticality, sort of tying the operational part or the life cycle part of asset management 
you know, to the business drivers of asset management. And that's really what criticality is, right? It's like, what's really important to the organization? How do we achieve our goals? Uh, and it's, you know, the assets that are critical are the ones that impact the organization's achieving its goals, maybe is a way to say that. Does yeah, that absolutely. No, it definitely does. And I think the... Um, this is where I really like the uh, integrated logistics support, logistics support analysis type analyses, which can be done during the design phases. Um, and looking at what they try to achieve, it's that understand the equipment before you even started to design it. <laughs> what, are, what are you trying to achieve? Well, that's kind of fundamental asset management, isn't it? And if you can use asset management to help you fund those studies in the right places, you can get to a point where you've designed out a lot of the problems before they've got there. You understand your failure modes. You've done your for me because it's part of your design, but then you've taken it further. You understand the training. You understand the level of repair. You understand the choices you've made to get to the point that you're at. And that, the aspiration for me is always that when you've gone through commissioning and you're on your first day of operations, you've already got all that information there. The first time you go with your vibration sensor, whatever it might be, you've already got three points of data from the commissioning. So already, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a 10. Well, it was eight on the commissioning. Oh, something's already going wrong. I need to have a look at, keep an eye on that straight away rather than waiting two years to start to find a problem. And especially from a criticality sense, uh, I know uh, safety critical infrastructure, especially, and nuclear is an easy one to pick up. Things like safety become such a, they're a given. Things have to be safe and they are traditionally safe. And there is a lot of really good stuff that goes on, but trying to balance the safety with performance. And Sellafield's a great example because it's a big ecosystem. You've got things that are being decommissioned, things that are processing the waste, things that are uh, 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 doing different jobs really so when you're looking at a local sense you can look at a, a certain facility and say it's holding some high hazard waste that facility has a degradation profile that is a liability that is on your books that potentially could break and cause a, a big incident if you don't manage it correctly mm. uh, and i'm not suggesting anyone does they manage really really well but that risk when you then look at the next plant that's dealing with the waste you could be in a position where you're trying to make a really efficient, really safe, brand new facility, uh, trying to keep it as safe as possible. But if it takes you an extra five years to commission, an extra 10 years to commission, that means you've put extra five or 10 years risk onto that upstream plant. So all of a sudden, when you look at the whole asset management for the whole site and understand your overall risk profile and what is value to you, what is, what's important, what your criticality is, actually, it may not even be in the facility that you're in. It may be somewhere else. And actually, your, your risk bases and the safety cases you make might actually be predicated on this might not be the safest way to do this, but it's a lot safer than that, <laughs> a lot safer than that other plant failing. Um, so, yeah, criticality is it's a really good place to start. And I think sometimes people get caught up in that hardware aspect. Um, sometimes if you stand back and look at your supply chain, look at the people, look at, um, there's a, have you ever read the Phoenix project? I don't think I have. No. So it's a book about DevOps and, um, applying DevOps in a manufacturing environment. And it's sort of lean Six Sigma TPM type uh, methodologies. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy in it who is, I think he's called uh, Brent, if I remember rightly. And he's this IT guy and they're trying to roll out some um, new, um, new applications. And he is the guy you go to. He is the one who will just fix everything quick snap. And when actually you stand back, as much as he is valued as the firefighter, as the person who'll get things done, 
he's actually <laughs> one of the worst parts of the organization because he's the bottleneck. And if he ever gets run over by a bus from a criticality perspective, yeah. you're in real trouble. And actually trying to break that and understand how you can distribute that value, how you can distribute that criticality and turn things into process is really valuable. But yeah, Phoenix Project, brilliant book, brilliant book. Yeah, interesting. So uh, what do you think the uh, you know other industries can learn from the nuclear industry in terms of asset management? I mean, beyond criticality, we just talked about that. <laughs> Anything else? Or is that just it? <laughs> I think there's, there's, there's some interesting things around some of the connections that they've already tried to make, like we've mentioned around to the, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, because it's quite a, a, a simple microcosm in some ways, because you can see how, how tangible and direct that power source is to, to satisfy some of those goals. But they come together as a, as a body very, very well. So say post-Fukushima, there was a number of... Um, uh, improvements across all nuclear facilities across the world um, and they rolled out improvements all over the place very very quickly very rapidly in in, in nuclear terms anyway um, and I think that community aspect is something that probably a lot of uh, organizations can learn from um, there's there's processes and standards such as in POE AP913 which is very nuclear focused but it's a consistent way of working which looks at criticality but it also looks at the other things that you need in place and it's trying to solve the 80% of the Pareto where everyone can get that 80% of benefit for 20% of the effort by standardizing um, and I think the, the other thing that I'd say in terms of learning is nuclear is in a very, very odd place because the, the decisions that are made during design and, and most definitely through operations don't only impact the 50-year life of the plant. They potentially impact the 60 to 100-year decommissioning part of the plant as well. So decisions you're making today actually potentially have a huge impact further down the line. So when you're looking at like economic operations of the plant today, you may actually be incurring quite a big cost further down the line. And then that reputational damage of the sector by making something hard to decommission or hard to get rid of. And, and that's a position that some countries are finding themselves very much in at the moment, that there is a big legacy of nuclear waste that is slowly being processed, slowly being dealt with. Um, but until that's dealt with, it's hard to process, hard for people to kind of get their head around, well, why should we build more? Because it's we're creating this legacy when in, rea in reality, I forget the number, but it's somewhere in the 96 to 98%, I think, of fuel that goes into a reactor is reusable. So you can take it out, you can put it through some chemical process and you can get it back and reprocess it again. Um, but yeah, it's, it, that community, especially, I think is really, really important. Well, I mean, I haven't had to... They had a few opportunities to come, uh, you know, have a little bit of involvement in the nuclear industry. Nothing like you, of course, but the, uh, uh, you know, visit had a chance to visit the Savannah River site, and they're dealing with the nuclear waste. And you know, what do you do with it? And that's, and and to a large degree, they were still, you know, really trying to figure out actually what to do with it. I thought I didn't think about it at that time because I was very focused on personal property, but. It is just a failure of asset management. I mean, you have an asset management plan and, uh, you know, talk about assets having positive or negative value. Well, uh, you know, that uh, nuclear waste is an asset that has, uh, uh, once you extract all the positive value, remains and has a negative value, perhaps. Uh, and if you don't have a plan on what's going to happen to it, uh, that's not a very good plan. You know, you haven't, haven't thought through it. 
No, it's not. And so if you, if, if you had to stand back and look at the, um, the entire sort of nuclear life cycle, you have nuclear fuel and say if 96, 98% is being recycled, um, you've then got a small amount which you can effectively boil down and turn into glass and vitrify so it, it can't get into the water table. It's it's very stable state, but it's a very small amount. So for, for context, I haven't got anything the right size, but uh, for, for someone to generate all the power they would need for their entire life, the waste is the size of a hockey puck context so if you compare that to coal to natural gas the amount of waste that is produced um and i always like the 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 facts i know it's true in the uk i'm not sure about anywhere else but if you were to take a nuclear um uh, sorry a coal-fired plant and put it onto a uk nuclear site it would break the um the level of uh, uranium i think it is or um cesium that gets let up the chimney Ah. it would be above the level that would be allowed for a nuclear site which is it's letting off more radiation than a nuclear plant, which is a very, very strange thing. But if you stand back and look at a government level or higher, the idea of that recycling and reprocessing fuel, if the fuel is your asset Mm. and you want to protect that for as long as you can, the decisions you would make as a government, if you had total control, may be very different to those that you'd make as a power generating facility and potentially storing waste underground rather than actually using it, reusing it and, and trying to get the most from it. And I think that's, that's quite a parallel, which a lot of different sectors can probably, um, maybe not learn from, but probably at least understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I guess, you know, it reduces to a real simple idea, which is think it through, (laughs) have a plan. Look ahead, you know. Don't cut corners, you know, around uh, safety and uh, you know all these other factors. Uh, you just hate to see it, as you mentioned earlier. When you know what gets hit in a cutback is the maintenance budget. As uh, I guess it was Tom Smith mentioned in our meeting this week that uh, you know for too long, as we all know, the practice has just been if you're short of cash, just steal it from the maintenance budget and. Uh, things everything's over engineered, so you know you're not going to see the problem for a while. But then, uh, then we end up with crumbling infrastructure and you know all the other uh, related problems. So a, a great example um, one of my colleagues gave me a, a week ago, which I have abused ever since, is they were looking at the some structures. So I sit within the transportation division quite um, of Atkins and. Uh, there's a structure being analysed and designed to reduce the amount of carbon that was in it. Quite a normal practice nowadays, I think. Um, and someone stood back and said, hang on a minute. What We now need to do maintenance on the bridge. So through the life, we're going to have to put roadworks up. And then they looked at the amount of carbon that's going to be generated from the queues that will be caused during the maintenance periods. And it was three times greater than the amount of carbon that was saved in the bridge. Uh let alone the maintenance costs and everything else. So, and I think that's that's a really good example of where asset management can help ask the right questions, stand back, trying to understand what you're trying to do, which is reduce carbon on the whole, not just in one specific place or give one designer one objective to get something as low as they physically can. Yeah. Mike, hi. Hi, uh, very fascinating, uh, Tim. And uh, we have two new members who uh, I have some questions uh, related to their work. But before we get to that, I want to actually uh, share my screen and uh, 
do what I should have done uh, previously in thanking our uh, everyone. And let's see, where do I go? Here we go. So, well, of course, thank you, Tim, for joining us. And uh, here are our patron sponsors, uh, ABS Quality Evaluations, ABS Group, Onuma Systems. Here are our organizational members. And a special shout out to uh, ABS Quality Evaluations and ABS Group uh, this month, who are the sponsors for this program. And ABS Quality Evaluations does certification to ISO 55001 and other standards. And the ABS Group, which is a separate entity, uh, provides consulting, and they've just launched their ISO 55001 um, certification team, uh, consulting team. Sorry, I got that mixed up. And I uh, just want to say that uh, next week uh, we have Carrie Heisman. We're on a uh, ISO 55000 uh, stretch here. We had Tom Smith who's involved and has been involved in that, Tim. And then uh, Carrie is, uh, uh, Jim, will you help me with her title at uh, she said assistant. The, I, I don't know. She has an official title. I'm not sure, but she's uh, supporting Jack Dempsey, uh, who is uh, the convener of Worker Four for TC. No, at for the ISO. Ah, for TC two fifty one. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Now, uh, Tim. So, um, LCE quality evaluation or. LCE, which is Lifecycle Consulting Engineers, um, started off by, uh, was founded by former U.S. nuclear sub workers. When they retired from the Navy, they ended up consulting back to the Navy about the subs. I don't know if you've been involved in that, but it, it brings up another issue of um, asset management, which is personality. In order to be working in a submarine, You've got to be a certain kind of person. Have you found that certain type of people are better at nuclear asset management than others? And how does that relate to other industries? Uh, it, it's a really interesting point. I, I have been involved in sort of comparable programs. Um, and it, I think, say, especially if you look to defense as a whole, not even just just nuclear, there's um, this you purposefully breed firefighters in defense, don't you? There's a problem. You figure out how to fix it there and then, and you get praised for it. That's kind of the absolute opposite of what you want from asset management. You want to get people to a place where it's a bit boring and they're thinking long-term. Um, and I think especially in nuclear, it's kind of the other way. You're in a position where you've got a lot of people where the safest thing quite often is do nothing. Shut down a reactor, pause, walk away. Let's have a good long think and procrastinate around it. And actually, you want to start taking some more reasonable actions. So things, for example, especially when it comes to um, safety critical systems, they tend to be quite shiny. They tend to be quite um, well looked after. But I've seen occurrences where you have a safety critical system and someone's looking up, yeah, over there, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And then there was an emergency and someone went up to go up to that safety critical system to read an instrument, press a button, whatever it may be. And the stairwell on the way up collapsed because it had never been maintained. 
And that view of criticality and understanding, if you only ever look at the process drawings, you will only have one view of criticality if you actually look at it from an asset management perspective. And look, any, any good reliability engineer, any good um, anyone good in that field should be able to stand back and see that bigger picture. But yeah, the, there's a real... Yeah, personalities and, and culture is such a huge thing. And it's really hard to breed and change, isn't it? And especially when you're down into the subs kind of territory, there's a there's a special breed. <laughs> there's a special breed. And they're very good at what they do. And yeah. I would have never thought that that answer would have gone in that direction. <laughs> and I think that points Interesting. why uh, uh, Asset Leadership Network was formed, not the Asset Management Network. And I think it's from the leadership that has that should take that bigger picture view and look to see, hey, these stairs look wonky. We need to do something about that and understand the holistic picture. Um, and maybe uh, leadership is the place where culture can begin to change. We once had uh, uh, Admiral Allen, who was the commandant of the Coast Guard. And he said his method for uh, changing the culture was to pull everyone through a very small hole. And the ones who did not make it through did not make it through. But uh, yeah, anyway, uh, then uh, our, another new member, uh, University Health, brings up the idea of uh, nuclear medicine. And I don't know if you're involved in that at all, but that's not something that's remote from us. That's something that's right there. And is there any, if you, do you know about uh, nuclear medicine asset management or have you been involved in that at all? Yeah, to, on the periphery. So when I reviewed the UK's um, sort of position on good, what good looks like in the asset management systems across the UK, it did extend out to all licensees. So that includes uh, some of the, the nuclear health facilities. Um, and it's all the same stuff. It's just got a bit more of a production line spin in reality because it's 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 more a process and kind of as bad as it sounds, churning people through rather than um, uh, rather than just being focused on one single big asset that's a power plant. That's good. It looks like we have a guest. Okay. See, um, say his name three times and he appears. Hello, David. <laughs> Uh, David's uh, may not be available. He said he, if he was around, he would join us, and perhaps he joined his other call. David, uh, your microphone is not on. Maybe I can turn it. But uh, uh, it's. He said that he might not be able to join us, and but since he was still there, I thought I'd give it a try. Okay. Well, let me. Uh... Tim, there's something I wanted to follow up on, jumping back to the ISO topics, is, you know, as a leader of the UK Mirror Group, is there, uh, you know, what's your focus? I mean, what do you, what's the big picture outcome you're looking from, looking forward from this? Is that something you can talk about and share? It's a good question. I'm not 100% sure whether we can share. I, I don't, don't quite know what the rules are around ISO because it's 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 that kind of closed knit, isn't it? And you, I mean, look, we, well, we just really call it look personal. At, just call it personal. Then. That's fine. You know, I don't know. Um, look, we're really lucky in the UK to have a lot of um, really good um really good experts who have been around from the very beginning, like David. Um, 
and I think there's a there's a lot of of work that that people hope to get in the first revisions, but that work, as I understand it, of trying to get a a common building set of building blocks that everyone around the world bought into as a a, a systematic way of approaching asset management that enabled the conversations of the last decade to take place and people like myself to come on board and understand and, and be able to be part of. I think going back and revisiting part of that is 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 a key focus and making sure that we try and make the most, but also trying to see what has changed over those last 10 years, because I think asset management is now at a point where it's quite so much bigger than it was 10 years ago. And it's, it, it now is possibly something different than when it, what it was originally intended to be in, in some subtle ways. And there's different sectors taking it on board um, different areas that had never been thought of to take it on. Um, and, and I know from a personal angle, there's, there's some real big societal issues out there at the moment. Um, I think for me, things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, they get banded around a lot. I've mentioned them a few times on this call, but they encapsulate a lot of, of what the good of humanity should be heading towards. And as I see it, that's where governments need to play a big role. But governments don't necessarily fully understand how to leverage their supply chains, how to leverage uh, their operational organizations in such a way that can actually generate value. So what I'm hoping to see in part of the 55,011 suite and and potentially wherever uh, the 55,000 document goes, seeing that recognition that Asset management as a way of working can actually help in these big areas and set up organizations for success and get the thinking in the right place so that you, you're actually fostering the right kind of um, questions, approaches. For me, that would be really brilliant success. Yeah, well said. That's good. I like that. That's definitely a clip. There is one thing, uh, one thing that uh, the Asset Leadership Network do- is doing, Tim. We've stood up the... Uh, uh, advancing equity with asset leadership uh, committee. And it takes a very simple uh, stance that involving all relevant stakeholders, if you actually follow that directive, you're addressing equity immediately. And we think that once you get all the stakeholders involved, your mission might change when you're actually listening to everybody. So it gets back to the culture then of people being afraid of letting go of uh, control in order for the greater good of society. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and look, I, I, it comes with its downside, doesn't it? And I think Jim can probably attest to this, uh, probably seen a lot more of it than me on these international committees. But sometimes um, you must have heard the old adage, what is it? Um, a, a camel, desi- oh, a horse designed by a committee is a camel. Um, and I think sometimes there is a place to have all those voices and it's really important, but also you need probably one person, two people with a guiding vision to at least set out a path, a path that's consistent. And, and there's an analogy that I I heard um, on a podcast a, a number of weeks ago, where if you go back to cave times, if you, if you look at what success looked like for a group of 10, say, um, people in a cave, it may be going and getting to a water source. And maybe they're here, maybe the water source is here. Getting there is success. Now, you might have a couple of people who know that the straightest line is here, but maybe you've got the wider groups who want to go that way or this way and take a different route. 
success back in those times was actually everyone staying together and actually starting to take some steps towards the right goal as a group had a greater chance of success from predators, whatever it might be. So I think that's where we are as well, that as much as we need to listen to everyone, we also need to have one vision. We need to stay as a collective and that will enable us to actually deliver. If we all fragment off trying to do our own little things, then we probably won't get anywhere. Excellent. That's good. Yeah, very good analogy. Well, Mike, you have any other questions or we don't want to keep Tim too long today? No, uh, uh, he's addressed everything really well. Thank you very much, Tim. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I just uh, these calls every week are different. And just there's just so many interesting, knowledgeable uh, people to get to know in the world of asset management. It's been a pleasure for uh, Mike and I and for the ALM to uh, host these. So uh, thank you for all you do in uh, asset management with uh, TC251 and uh, look forward to working with you going forward in those efforts. Look forward to it. And yeah, thank you. And thank you for welcoming me so well into the committee. It's been It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and we would like to thank the Andrew James Advisory Group for their sponsorship. For more information about AJAG and their services, please visit www.andrewjamesadvisory.com or email info at andrewjamesadvisory.com. You can find this and other podcasts, videos, papers, and more at assetleadership.net.